there hasn't ever been really a safe space for black women, black people to engage in wellness practices. And the image of what a woman in wellness looked like, you know, hasn't always been a, a person of color. Welcome to today's episode of the Global Wellness Summit podcast. I'm your host, Kim Marshall. It's just a few weeks until the U.S. election as we record this intro, and a little less than a month from this year's innovative Global Wellness Summit. It's innovative because it will be a hybrid model of a virtual and an in-person event at the Breakers Palm Beach. It's billed as a new model for wellness-safe conferences, and it's being overseen by the 17th Surgeon General, Dr. Richard Carmona, who, yes, we have interviewed on this podcast. But today's episode's a bit different. We ask you to give us a minute to explain why before you jump to the conclusion that you've heard the topic before. Although it was March, it actually seems like a few years have passed since the country shut down due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Then came the racial unrest crisis with protests in the streets in June, sparked by the world watching a video of the killing of George Floyd by a police officer. That same month, GWS hosted a masterclass entitled An Open Conversation About Race and the wellness community. Hundreds joined the Zoom call, most knowing that the hashtag wellnesssowhite had appeared for a reason. If they really stopped to think about it, it was clear that people of color are not well represented in the higher echelons of the wellness world, or in the front lines for that matter. In general, there was nary a person of color to be found in yoga studios, spa retreats, athletic clothing ads, even in hip vitamin company videos. At the start of the masterclass, questions were proposed such as, is this incident going to change things? Where do we go from here? Is this the beginning of a new chapter? Susie Ellis, co-founder of the Global Wellness Summit said, we have a lot to learn and a lot to do. The summit and the Institute should use our leadership position and the power of our collected voices on this global platform to help. So what do we do now? Do we just post a picture of Black Lives support on Instagram or hang a sign in our windows or hire Black models for our photo shoots or Black speakers for our meetings? And then do we think it's all done? Today's podcast is part of the Global Wellness Summit's commitment to continue the conversation and expand upon it with honesty, humility, and heart. We will be sharing our leader livecast interviews with two Black leaders, one whom I first met on that very same GWS Masterclass. Her name is Randy Mae Stafford, and she's a Toronto-based wellness counselor who's been helping individuals, couples, families, and organizations for the past 10 years. She's a meditation and mindfulness teacher, an author, a facilitator, and a wellness consultant. Her focus is on self-care and well-being, love, and compassion. Randy Mae also co-founded the Black Therapist Collective and She donated her services to clients of color for the entire month of June to help them deal with collective grief and indirect trauma. Listen for what Randy May says about wellness in the workplace, the mental health crisis that's facing the black population, and how to tell if supporters are just participating out of fear or a desire to really change things. Our second guest is Dr. Kevin Chapman. As a black therapist, Dr. Chapman knows he is a rarity, since as he explains, only 4% of professional therapists are black, and even fewer are male. And he is a PhD, a degree that he explains only 2% of the population overall has. Kevin also has a unique perspective. He was born and raised and practices his specialty in Breonna Taylor's hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. But as a bonus gift to us all, Dr. Chapman specializes in treating anxiety. And really, who of us hasn't felt the volume turned up on anxiety levels of late? You know, these interviews go beyond the typical conversation. They get personal, they get real, and they offer suggestions, solutions, and tools to help us all. We realize, though, that social injustice is a global problem and that cases of man's inhumanity to man have been going on for eons. But that doesn't mean we don't try to get better or that we don't take the time to have those important conversations. Thanks for indulging me with a little bit longer intro. But let me just end with a quote I recently read in an international publication. 
Prejudice is like a virus. It harms its victims, and people can be unaware that they are infected. People can be prejudiced not only toward those of another nationality, race, tribe, or language, but also toward those of a different religion, gender, or social class. Some judge people negatively based on their age, education, disabilities, or physical appearance, yet they still feel that they are not prejudiced. Unquote. This conversation is about getting to the root cause and changing hearts, one discussion at a time. Enjoy today's podcast. It's an honor to bring it to you. Hi, Randy. Hi. How are you? How's Canada today? How's Toronto? It's actually nice. It's really lovely. It's, it's lovely. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really lovely. <laughs> well, I will say we usually have bright light here, but it's a cloudy day in Los Angeles. So sorry, I'm a little dimmer today. But anyway, Randy, tell, can I say, can I call you Randy May? Is that the, That's fine. Yeah. I shorten all my friends' names. You know, I call my friend Linda Lynn. So forgive me ahead of time. Randy May, would you tell us what sort of work you do? What's your specialty? You can say it better than I can. Yeah. So one of my specialties is I've been a counselor for the last 10 years. So working with people, um, working with individuals, couples, organizations. So I've been doing that. Um, and part of it is really the theme and everything that I do, whether it's from like putting on the Mindful Living Barbados Conference or um, it's working with organizations and teaching like an emotional intelligence course or a wellness course. The whole thread is like self-care and well-being. So that thread goes from whatever practice I'm doing, whether big or small, that kind of thread goes through everything. Oh, that's so wonderful. And you know, it's funny because we're talking about the wellness industry and which sort of was born from spas and luxury lifestyle, that sort of thing. And we always said we need to be more appealing to the masses. We need to make it more, you know, available. But right. the conversation never really was around communities of color enough. And I think Absolutely. on the first call that I met you for the Global Wellness Summit, I think it was a masterclass, um, they were just coming clean with it. Like, I'm sorry, but this is a reality. We're going to try to change it. What has been your experience in the wellness world in that regard? Yeah, I think one of the things that's really important to explore is uh, that is women and people of color um, are have their own wellness community because for so long we felt like we weren't a part of it. So something as simple as why I created Mindful Living is because I was speaking at a mindfulness event once uh, and I was exhausted of feeling like I wasn't supposed to be there. Like oh, I had someone suggest to me in a very subtle way, but not so subtle that I wasn't, I didn't fit into that space, Yeah, which I'm glad it happened now because it, it propelled me to create my own space and space that is inclusive. Yeah. But part of it is, it's like, you know, when we talk about wellness or looking at yoga studios, right? Yoga studios are now the image of a yoga teacher is changing. Right. So we have like there's a wellness collective that I'm a part of called Door, where they're all black yoga instructor instructors. Wow. Uh, black girl in Ohm with Lauren Ash. Uh, and so there's all of these collectives that have created because there hasn't ever been really a safe space for black women, black people to engage in wellness practices. And the image of what a woman in wellness looked like, you know hasn't always been a, a person of color. No, I, I've been there and I'm telling you, you know, I always think I have freedom of speech, but when you read and listen to the white fertility book, you're like, no, you don't. But my husband's from Cuba, right? And my sister is on listening. And I said, I was going to mention this. We grew up in Motown where you could see our town on the Motown record label. And right. our city was, there was a line of demarcation, the white side of the city and the black side. And our church split to build a new one, got too big. So we went to the group on the black side of town. Well, that was fine. That didn't, I remember being like, oh, that's cool. And then all of a sudden, my older brother started dating and got engaged to a black woman. Right. And 1971, the family just panicked. And right. I remember thinking, what? And they would always say, what about the children? And then my sister, I'd say a year or two later, started dating a guy from the Bahamas. We had moved to Florida. And once again, panic. And she writes in her paper for her college class on gender and race equality or something. 
she wrote, 20 years later, my sister marries a Cuban and everything's okay. But right. really, it isn't okay, right? <laughs> right, right, right. And so that, even when we think about families, right? Um, when we talk about race, like when a family gets upset that a black person is coming into their family and someone says, well, what about the children? But it's really, what is the environment that we create for the children to grow in? Right. Right, so it's right, not right. so much this whole idea of like, what about the children? But it's like, what's the environment you're creating for those children to be born into? That's right. And, and you really got me on the call, the very first call on racial equality with the Global Wellness Summit. You said that in Canada, where you live, they had decided to allocate $10 million for black mental health or people of color. Is that right? I don't remember how much money was allocated, but I do know that it was the public health addressed it as a mental health crisis, right? And so recognizing that racism that's happening and being experienced and being shown on the media is impacting people's mental health and well-being. And one of the questions we always ask on these yeah. little live tests is, what could we learn from your experience? You told me, Randy May, what, is you, what did you do with your practice for, I think, the month of June, the whole month of June, is that right? right. So for my practice, I opened up my practice to offer free counseling to Black people from wherever they are in um, the Black community um, to have free counseling. Because what happens when we watch somebody die on media and it gets replayed and replayed, everybody's experiencing vicarious trauma. And what, what that symbolizes is that, you know, people talk about Black Lives Matter, but what it really is, is trying to get the world to understand that Black Lives Matter. And when a black life is lost on video that then impacts black people in the black community, our community's sense of self in the sense of look how easy it is for this person to kill a member of our community. Um, and then, you know, easy it is to kill someone for our community. And now I'm going out into the community wondering if I'm safe. So I supported, uh, I had over 70 sessions. I supported people from in the States, in Washington, um, in New York, uh, clients in Tanzania, all over. And the common thread was that everyone was going through is collective grief. Yep. We all watched a man die and there's, and a woman, Breonna Taylor, and several people die. And because of this, what is so important that people understand is like, um, I also did a talk with some students at a university here in, in Canada and the students had, one of the students had said, it's almost like black people are alien now. And when he said that, I understood what he was saying because the idea of when, when we say black lives matter and the fact that we have to announce this to the world and claim <laughs> that our lives matter in this day and age that we're in, you know what I mean? And so it's like, it's so that's why that moment, that movement and is so important because we need to be able to stand in spaces, you know, and, and people need to recognize that, yes, our lives do matter beyond um, whatever it's been conceived or to be right. So for example, how does that extend to my day-to-day -day life? Right. Um, like when I go to teach, I've gone to teach in spaces in corporate spaces and people look around like, Oh, where's the teacher? <laughs> Or I get the question of, you know, did you make all of that material yourself? Or this when someone says, you know, you have to teach for the whole day. Have you done that before? Oh, my God. So these are some of the things that I experience. And so I'm grateful that I had to learn to navigate these things. Right. But what it does is a lot of black people that I speak to and I've counseled we talk about the exhaustion of having to navigate spaces, especially the workspace, right? So this connects to wellness because wellness in the workplace really matters. And wellness in the workplace really matters for people of color because this idea of how I have to navigate, how I wear my hair, how I show up in the space, yeah. um, this idea of an angry black woman that um, yeah. a lot of women, black women are afraid of being. So all of that is happening at the same time. And so I just, I hope that, you know, you asked, you asked me a question and how does this all connect? These are some of the things that have come up in my practice. Well, right. also, also you put your literal money where your mouth is by opening your service. I mean, to think this is what happened to me. And I asked my girlfriend, can I, can I share this experience? 
she is um, the one I called. She's a health coach. She's a black woman. And she invited me. We'd gone hiking in LA the weekend there were curfews. And our curfew was supposed to be 8 p.m. And while we were on the trail, it changed to 6. So there were two Latina girls and she and her beautiful daughter. And they had to, we all had to hurry and you know, get to our cars. And I worried about them getting home. And she invited me then a couple of days later to a journaling class. On this journaling class, Randy May, I was so moved because... You know, these were girls I knew from from religious organizations where I thought they were Christian. They were, you know, upstanding, fine young citizens. You know, they wouldn't be picked on. I mean, come on, who would ever bother them? And then when they shared their experiences of being pulled over just because of driving while black or their, you know, professional family members. And then when they had to turn off the camera and saw, and they said they keep hearing George Floyd's voice in their ears. And him yelling out for his mother. And I was like, are you kidding? It has affected you too? It was a moment in my life of like, you're an idiot. Right. So forgive us for having those moments. No, and this is part of it that's so important that like George Floyd dying impacted us all. And Breonna Taylor dying impacts us all. And it is a visceral experience of of watching somebody's life being taken and having to hear that person call out for their mother while you watch someone you can, when, when a life is lost beneath your body and you're holding them down, you can feel that. And and we all watch someone just decide to like hold it in their space and just allow someone to call out for their life. And so watching that globally as a black person it's like losing somebody. And that's why I mentioned that we experience collective grief. Yeah. You know, I've, I also said that I think when, you know, we have to feel the guilt that we feel, feelings are made to feel as they say, but when um, I have noticed when, you know, because I think a lot of us are scared to say anything or do anything, right? We're going to put our foot in their mouth. We're going to offend someone. We're going to say the wrong thing. But I have seen such an openness in watching sincere white or people not of color apologize for something they've done. Like, remember, uh, was it Amy Cooper and the Harvard grad um, bird watcher who once in Central Park, you know that whole story, right? When she right. called the cops on him. Um, right. Once they charged her, she lost her job, she lost her dog and everything. He said, enough. You know, that's enough. She doesn't need to suffer anymore. And it's so, I don't know, it's so ready to forgive. And my friend said that maybe it's because um, black, the black population is sort of God fearing in general, if that's too much of a generalization. I think, I think what happened with the person who is, you know, going out into nature, watching birds and someone decides, and the fact that somebody knows that they can call the police and say a particular phrase about a black person and that the police will arrive and question this black person. And so we talk about um, saying enough that that person has lost their job and their life has changed. But what if that went in a different direction and that man lost his life? What if it went in a different direction and he got arrested and now he has a record and now his whole life changes? Yeah. Right. So when we talk about, yes, enough is enough, but enough is enough in the fact that we, that people know and specifically white Americans and white Canadians know that you can say a particular phrase, uh, I feel afraid, or this person is a, this black person is aggressive and police will show up and protect them, not even asking the other person a question. And so that is very dangerous territory that we're walking in. And so when we say, yes, black people, we have a spiritual aspect of our culture and we go into this forgiveness space, but we also have been taught through colonialism that we experience hurt and we have to suffer through it. <sighs> oh, this whole idea of this whole idea of, yes, we are forgiving people because we have had to endure it for so long. And often when we endure it, there's, there's no consequence to the person who is oppressing us. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Often. And I, I think those conversations need to be had. And if people are listening more now because they're shut down with COVID and the ears are more open because there's not a lot else to do, so be it. So, Randy May, what can another company learn from your experience? What you did during the shutdown, reaching out, listening, you know, you didn't charge for those sessions. So what can we learn from what you did? 
Yeah, I think um, Bo St. John, she was just doing a talk and she was talking about she's the new, I believe, CMO of Netflix. She was the CMO for Uber and lots of other big companies. And she says when businesses are sitting at their table, like, can you go into your office or look at your staff? And is your staff homogeneous, right? Like, does your staff all look like you? That's a problem, right? And when sometimes we say, let's invite, um, let's add more diversity or culture into our business, partly what people don't want to say is like, no, we need more black people here. Just say it. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so it's like, part of it is, how can wellness companies, brands, and authentically say, no, what our business right now is homogeneous and we need to have, because there are Black people who are educated, who are well-versed in the roles that they do. So it's not a shortage. Yeah. It's about taking an introspective look at your business and saying, do we reflect the real world that we live in? Right. And also, I think the recent social unrest, I don't, I don't know what happened in Canada. I'm sorry, I should have looked. But, you know, I live in a city that there is that line of demarcation, Los Angeles. And when the Rodney King riots happened, most of the riots were down in that, you know, in his side of town. So those on the west side, you might say, could go, oh, too bad, you know, that's going on. But the fact that the looting and the protest happened in Beverly Hills and the, you know, really key I would say white enclaves. It did make people stop and pay attention. And I say this experience, this experience that really makes me sick, but that happened in our neighborhood, which is quite white. I got a text one night and they said, um, everybody go out at 9 p.m. tonight with your flashlight and shine it in the heavens for nine minutes for George Floyd. And right. so I went out with my dogs to see what would happen at nine o'clock. And I saw two clusters of white families doing that. And then at the end, one of the moms said, okay, let's say the name George Floyd really loud. And I thought, well, number one, I'm glad you're doing something. Number two, it's quite passive. But number three, if George Floyd would have walked down the street three months ago, you would have at least walked to the other side. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. So where is the authenticity meter? You know, like I can see through that. How do you, what's your advice? I think part of it is the authenticity meter is like, when you like in your community, right? So let's, let's take that and see how we can expand it and broaden it. Part of it is like, are, is your friend circle homogeneous? Is your work circle homogeneous? Is your uh, children's experiences homogeneous? Yeah. Right. What are you, what are you educating your children about black people? And what are the conversations that you allow yourselves to have around your children, around black people? Yeah. Right. Because children are always listening. They're like sponge. And so the next generation, children aren't born racist, but they hear everything that we are saying and they formulate an idea based on what their family says. And so this is so important because People often wonder, what do I and I do? It's like when that person sits beside you or comes into the store in your community or walks down the street, say hello. Engage in conversation. You know, uh, show your children that you are engaging in conversation. Show your children that you don't want to cross the street or you don't want to get too close. I mean, it's COVID, so nobody wants to get too close, but (laughs) (laughs) right. But the whole idea about it is like, We really need, um, white people are often saying like, well, what do I do? And part of it is like, if you know know how to love somebody and you know how to be compassionate towards somebody in your family or your life that looks like you, that tells me that you have the compassion and the ability to be compassionate with another. And so if you can't do that with somebody who's black, that means that there's some internal work that has to happen. Well, that conversation in white fragility is just admit it. We, we have been influenced by a society that gives white, the white race a leg up. And I was talking to my girlfriend about it. And I was like, what have I heard? Like somebody even said, I heard John Legend interviewed. And he's like, let's not get silly. If realtors want to do something, they don't have to stop saying master bedroom, but they need to stop not showing homes in certain neighborhoods to black families. Do you know what I mean? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So also, what is a book, podcast, or TED Talk that you think when you've been working with your clients 
that is something to go reflect on, what would you recommend? Um, a book. So, sorry, I'm looking, I'm not staring off the space, I'm looking at my bookshelf. Um, <laughs> That's a okay. book for, that I share with my clients. It's called Rock My Soul by Bell Hooks, and it talks about Black self-esteem. Broaden My Goal? Um, sorry, uh, Rock My Soul by Bell oh, Hooks. Oh, rock, rock My Soul. Okay. Rock My Soul by Bell Hooks. A lot of her books support Black identity, Black self-esteem. For a TED Talk, I think we also, in order to help for the job that I do, whether it's someone dealing with racism or someone dealing with anxiety, I always encourage people to have a meditation practice because it really rewires your brain, right? So for example, meditating for 30 minutes a day for eight weeks reshapes your brain, especially in the areas that deal with compassion and and empathy, which is above your ear called a temporal parietal junction. So that increases uh, your compassion, empathy, and perspective taking. So often I will tell people to watch uh, Sarah Lazar. She has one of the few labs uh, at Harvard University and around the world, and she does research. So her TED Talk is seven minutes, and I think it's at Cambridge. But if you just search her name, Sarah Lazar, find it. So part of it for me is just really encouraging people to... Think about like, am I being compassionate towards that person? Did a bias just happen in my mind? Why don't I think that person is worthy of being respected? I have to think about these things when I look at if I'm if I'm white and I'm looking at another person of color, right? What in my mind is is creating this space that that person is not as worthy as the same things that I'm that I have the right and privilege to? Yeah. Uh, it is very amazing. And I will encourage everyone to follow your Instagram page. It made me feel better. I was nervous about our conversation. And I was just seeing those those phrases you put up, like, stay on purpose, the energy of joy. And then I just love that one, restore black joy. And, you know, no one has the right to rob someone's joy, right? Absolutely. So if Absolutely. we look for ways to give people joy, that's one tip, Right. Absolutely. And joy is a birthright. And in our community and in the black community, why that hashtag black joy is why you'll see it there is because it's we have because of what's happening and we're grieving. There's a question of like, am I worthy of experiencing joy, even though I'm grieving, even though we're going through this movement? Right. And so, for example, I mentioned early the restore program that I'm a part of where it's like black women, black teachers Uh, giving a safe space for other black women to just like sometimes in class people just sit in there or like you know I get to let down for a moment because I don't feel like I'm judged which sometimes doesn't happen unfortunately in other wellness spaces like we've talked about right like that's the whole reason why I created Mindful Living Barbados because I went to speak and it was a big stage and before I went up on stage the person made me feel like I wasn't supposed to be there you know and I was like it took me five years to get mindful living going, but I pursued it because if I open up, if I kick down the door, then that means other people get to walk through the door. And I have an eight-year-old son. Yeah. And so I don't need him going into a space that I've walked in and asking me, mom, why didn't you try to kick down the door for me? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you. Well, I also see that on August 1st, you're doing a presentation called Peace in a Chaotic World. And how would people find out about that, Randy May? Yeah, they can go to my website um, and on the front page, there's Peace in a Chaotic World. You just click on the Eventbrite um, and I will be posting it on my Instagram, hopefully today or tomorrow night. Yep. Uh, But the whole idea with that series that I'm doing is it's four parts or five parts. One is exploring the conversation of how do we find peace in this world? So for me, I look at pieces of vibration. So how do we actually allow ourselves to be amongst this chaos? and dip into peace. And the other three parts are how do we understand what peace is? How do we cultivate it? And how do we actually live with it in our daily life? I know the answer to this, Randy May, but is your pre- are your presentations mainly for Black viewers or no? So oft, sometimes they are, but this presentation is for everybody because I think collectively, hopefully on the Zoom call, everybody will be able to see each other's faces and yeah. understand that we're all worthy of peace. Yeah. 
Well, I'm so sorry we have to stop talking. I could go on and on with you, Randy May, but let's do it. Now, remember, we have the Global Wellness Summit podcast. It's The new season is starting in a week or so, and I have a hunch we might see you there. I'm not sure. But thank you for your kindness, your beauty, and your effort, and tell your girlfriend that, sorry, I took you away for so long. <laughs> so thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I we'll be in Yeah. Thanks for your wisdom. Keep up the good work. Okay, great. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Now a word from this season's sponsor, Carillon Miami Wellness Resort. So, Dr. Del Campo, welcome to the Carillon Miami medical team. For the sake of the listeners who may not be clear, can you tell us the difference between integrative slash functional medicine and typical medical practices? Sure. So, we'll start with what the the typical medical practices, it's it's based on a disease model where doctors or other medical providers, such as practitioners or PAs, where they diagnose a patient with a certain diagnosis or condition based on their symptoms and their presentation, physical presentation or lab exams. And once they find a diagnosis, then they treat with a certain medication or a certain a certain kind of therapy or even a certain kind of intervention, whether it's surgical, um, whether it's um, through interventional radiology or wh- whatever, whatever the procedure is. Um, mm-hmm. So that's basically the very typical Western kind of medical model. It's, it's known as a disease, disease-based model, you know, yep. disease and medication or procedure. Functional medicine and integrative medicine goes beyond that. So yes, we, we take into consideration what your symptoms are and what diagnoses you have had have been given to you in the past, but we look a little further. We look to see why, what is actually causing these manifestations of these symptoms and what is actually causing whatever condition you have, whether it's rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, whether it's a GI disorder, such as IBS, IBD. And so we look at the actual root cause, whether it's an inflammatory cause, an infectious cause, other causes... Uh, such as metabolic uh, insufficiencies or deficiencies, whether it's a hormone issue or whether it's all of these or some of these combined. So, you know, we all should be looking at the root cause and we all should be paying attention to what is actually causing your symptoms, whether it's a lack of energy, lack of libido, um, weight gain, uh, brain fog. So we should really spend more time addressing the root cause and so that's what I do. I just uh, spend 60 to 90 minutes with my patients on initial evaluation, um, just discussing their entire medical history, their lifestyle, their habits, their, their nutrition, what they eat, um, whether or not they drink alcohol or use other, other substances, and really um, honing down on, on really what's going on and really looking, looking with the microscope at every, every patient and giving them the time uh, that they need. Um, and also, obviously, doing a lot of diagnostic labs, looking at your typical CBC, your CMP, but also looking at um, any inflammatory markers, any genetic markers, any hormone imbalances, and so on and so forth. Um, so a lot of diagnostics, which 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 helps us diagnose um, what's happening and and, uh, and formula, formulate our treatment options. But it really seems that people would have such a sense of relief from finding out the why. Not just the what, but the why. So I can see why you were attracted to that sort of medicine. In fact, I see that you've been practicing medicine for 10 years and your background is in family medicine and psychiatry. Clear to me, but tell our listeners why you decided to work with the New Life Institute. And then if you could just talk about your aging strategy. Sure. So I trained traditionally um, as a family medicine doctor, um, but I had additional training um, in psychiatry because I was always fascinated with the brain. I was a neuroscience major at UCLA, oh. a university. And so I was always fascinated with the different lobes of the brain, the different compartments that the brain has, um, different localizations within the brain structures. And really, I, it was such a strong interest of mine that I said, you know, I really want to pursue this at, at a higher level. And so I decided to go to med- medical school and become a doctor. But my first inclination was becoming a primary care doctor, you know, knowing a little bit about everything so I can help a lot of people, yeah. um, with, really with an emphasis on mental health. And that's really what I did. 
And I practiced that kind of medicine for about 10 years, you know, your traditional Western kind of a disease-based model. And I really started growing really frustrated with the model. Um, I wasn't getting that gratification of saying, wow, I'm helping all these people get better, reverse Mm -hmm. their illness, help them lower their cholesterol levels, reduce their blood pressure. I wasn't doing that. All I was doing was really simply just prescribing medication. And really, I didn't have the time to really look at really why, why they had high blood pressure, why they had high cholesterol, why they were obese, why they couldn't lose weight, why they had thyroid issues, why they were inflamed. So I got very frustrated with that uh, medical model. And a friend of mine who actually had similar training than me, as me, introduced me to functional medicine and said, hey, you really need to look at this, um, at this other medical model because it really does help patients reverse certain illnesses such as diabetes, high cholesterol, obesity, metabolic syndrome. I mean, all the big, big conditions in our country. The lifestyle-induced conditions, right, doctor? Exactly, the lifestyle-induced conditions. And as a, as a typical doctor, we, we weren't trained to, to, to address lifestyle. We were just trained to identify and diagnose and treat. Wow. And so I found that New Life Institute here in Miami really had that, that vision that I had. And so when I moved to Miami, I luckily came across New Life Institute and their satellite location at the Carillon Wellness Resort. And really that was very attractive to me, you know, working with people that care about their health, care about their wellness and their longevity, not only physically, the way they look, but also internally, the way they function, the way they sleep, the way they move, um, their, the way they feel, their emotions. And so with my background, both being in primary care and mental health, I felt that I could really offer um, these clients, these hotel guests, these residents, uh, you know, something very substantial. And, and, and medica- medicine is always evolving, learning new things all the time. We're learning new natural therapies, you know, homeopathic therapies, um, new ways of exercising, of, of amplifying your nutrition, of biohacking the body. Um, so yeah, so it's it's an evolving field and it's exciting, um, and that's I think that's why I felt that I really needed to make a change just because I saw I saw things happening. You saw some potential there for for a positive change. So how would you create an aging strategy for a guest or a resident of Carillon, Miami? So the aging strategy is something that's completely personalized. It's customized to every patient, every individual. It takes into consideration their their background, um, their family history, their cultural history, and obviously their medical history um, and their surgical history. So taking all that into consideration, as well as their lifestyle, you know, a lot of people travel a lot or, you know, traveling, we're traveling a lot before the pandemic and hopefully we're going to be traveling a lot more now. So taking into consideration their lifestyle and what things are introducing to their, to their bodies, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, caffeine, pharmaceutical medication, toxins in their water supply, toxins in the air supply, EMF. So all of these things are, we're constantly um, being exposed to. And so the aging strategy really looks at, 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 the, at the person in its entirety and dissects the areas that, that we need to work on. And so by doing that, I formulate uh, a pretty, pretty significant lengthy recommendations based on, um, based on what, I, what I'm seeing with the patient. And so that's kind of known as the aging strategy. I help patients age better, improve their longevity, feel better with, with, this, uh, with this strategy. That is really in keeping with everything we talk about at the Global Wellness Summit and so many of our guests on the podcast. So one last question. Tell me your thoughts on how immune modulation in specific and micronutrients might help keep our bodies strong during the time of COVID and beyond. That's a great question. That's something that constantly um, hearing about. And, you know, I think with COVID and the pandemic surfacing, we're learning now that it's, it's so important to have a baseline, a strong baseline health and supporting your body with the right kind of nutrients, such as vitamin D, calcium, vitamin C, glutathione, all of these things that we think we get from our food, but we really don't get the, the, the amounts that we need from food because our diets have changed so dramatically in the last hundred years. So, you know, really 
addressing the the micronutrients that our bodies may be deficient in. Um, I do a very, very um, good diagnostic study that looks at all of your vitamins, all of your cofactors, all of your antioxidant levels. And when I look at the results, I'm able to say, so, you know, your results show that you're low in vitamin D, you're low in vitamin C, you're low in iron, you're low in glutathione. And I'm able to reintroduce these uh, nutrients at the right levels so that patients are at their optimal levels. And that uh, uh, once they're at the optimal levels, they're they're able to modulate their immune system the way the way it should. So these nutrients help create more stem cells, uh, more mast cells, um, you know, all of the Th1, Th2 helper cells that our immune system needs to fight infections. Um, so supplying all of those cells with the right nutrients and the right cofactors can really help you uh, stay strong and improve your defenses so that you're not susceptible to, um, to, to viruses and bacteria and fungi and all those uh. things. I love it. Airborne viri. Anyway, Dr. Del Campo, we can't thank you enough. You speak our language, you sing our song, and we really encourage you to keep up the great work down at Carillon Miami Wellness Resort. And you know what? I will see you there. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to meet you in person. All right. Looking forward to it. Chapman, how are you? Hey, hey, Kim, good to see you. So good to see you again. We met. Likewise. We met via Omrit Ocean Resort and Residences in Palm Beach because you advised them. You're their anxiety and psychologist advisor. And our, the last time we talked was for Global Wellness Day, right? Yep, that is the last time we spoke. Yeah, and we can always depend on you for specific, clear advice, Dr. Chapman. So I thank you for that. Can we start out by explaining your background, how you got into psychology? Yeah. So, Kim, the short version is that when I was an undergrad at Center College, a small liberal arts school in Kentucky, in the middle of nowhere, I majored. Well, I went into my first psychology course and I didn't know anything about what psychology was. I really didn't. But it sounded interesting because it was kind of a gen ed. And when I took my first semester of psychology, which is rare, as you know, I was like, oh, this is what I want to be. So when I <laughs> delved into psychology and then got, you know, of course, matriculated to say abnormal psychology, I said, okay, so anxiety disorders are one of the most common things people have. A third of people get treatment, yet it's treatable. Yeah, sign me up. So once I learned that as an undergraduate, I immediately fell in love with psychology. And how does being an athlete tie into that? Yeah. So as you know, Kim, I was a two-sport athlete. I played football and ran track in college. I was a sprinter. And as you know, you know, you learn as an athlete to engage in what we call mental toughness. So you have to regulate and manage a wide range of emotions as an athlete. And you have to do so in a way that, you know, is very controlled and present focused. So ultimately, we know that performance anxiety, for instance, is something that we all have that's not just specific to athletes, but also in any sort of form, whether it be giving a speech or meeting someone new for the first time, ordering food, the things we take for granted. And being an athlete, that's really important because ultimately we all have to deal with anxiety and that's not something that's exempt in a sport, right? So it's something that we all have to navigate. It's a normal process and it's something that we all have to deal with. Well, how long did it take you to get to your specialty? How long did it take you to hang a sign on the door, Dr. Chapman, that this is what you were and how you can help people? Yeah. So ultimately, you know, I have a PhD in clinical psychology and I have a second Uh, expertise, I guess, if you will, in sports psych as well. So ultimately from, you know, going through my undergraduate degree, my four-year program of that, I then did a clinical psychology master's degree, which was about a year and a half. And then I went into a PhD program and much of my coursework transferred at that point. So at that stage, Kim, when I transferred from a master's program to a doctorate program, I worked with a specific professor as a mentor who specialized in what we call the family transmission of anxiety. So that was an additional three years to do that, to do that coursework. And that's when I started getting my basis for anxiety related work. Well, all I can tell is every time I talk to you, I feel less anxious. So I'm happy. (laughs) Now, you know, Kevin, this is such a weird time. This pandemic hit. If that isn't cause enough, then you have racial unrest. And now we have a political election year. With yin and yang, you know, um, what some people feel is inciting division. Um, And it's enough to give anybody acid reflux. So Mm -hmm. tell us, 
how you started um, seeing patients. How was this year when the pandemic hit? How is it different for you? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Kim. As you know, I do quite a bit of media psychology, and I've spoken with a plethora of journalists since COVID. And one of the things that I predicted, which is not that I have this ability to do that, it's just more so how anxiety disorders work, is that what I've been telling journalists from the outset is that what we can expect is that the incidences of anxiety and related disorders because of the uncertainty associated with things like COVID and the racial injustices combined, two pandemics, if you will, you're going to see an influx in cases of anxiety, which 40 million Americans a year have anyway. So you take something that triggers a great deal of uncertainty in anyone, right? That's obviously going to create an opportunity, if you will, to experience more anxiety symptoms. And of course, that came into fruition. So our phones, of course, have rung off the hook as a result. Because it takes the right situation or relative stressor, Kim, to trigger anxiety and related symptoms for people who have a predisposition to begin with. And COVID is like literally the stars aligning in a very negative way for people who have a predisposition to be anxious to begin with. Add that uncertainty with COVID, add physical distancing, adding, taking away your ability to work out, see loved ones, so on and so forth. That's going to create anxiety in anybody. Right, exactly. The other thing that I just saw on your Instagram feed is you were quoted in the Wall Street Journal piece that was, you know, maybe a ray of hope that more of the black population are feeling open to seek out therapy. I think it was a National Institutes of Health 2017 survey said 48 percent of white respondents would seek help, but only 31, 31 percent of black respondents would seek help. So what are you mm-hmm. seeing there? Well, what I'm seeing now, well, historically there's been a stigma associated with mental health in general. And then when you talk about people of color in general, then you get even more specific in terms of the disparity of mental health. And then when you talk about African-Americans in particular, then you see even more of a distrust of mental health services, mistreatment historically with the medical profession, historically. So culturally speaking, many African-Americans have developed what we call healthy paranoia because we don't know if someone is going to take advantage of us in a mental health arena or health arena at at that matter. So with that said, as things have evolved over time, though, you know, when you have more people that look like me, other persons of color who are mental health professionals who build cultural trust and so on and so forth, you're naturally going to be able to decrease stigma and say, look, we all have batteries that need to be recharged. And it is important for us to learn how to regulate emotions, despite whether or not we have actual, what I call, Kim, true alarms, which are actual racial injustices, actual discrimination, actual macroaggressions, like those things really do happen. But with that said, it's we still have the ability to meet someone that we can match with culturally to help us navigate strong emotional experiences. And I think you're seeing an increase, thankfully, you're seeing an increase in people, particularly African-Americans and other people of color and indigenous populations, who are increasingly seeking mental health services because the stigma is becoming less and less. And that's an awesome thing. That's great. But also, did I read somewhere where only 4% of professional psychologists are Black? Did I read that yeah. right? <laughs> you read that correctly. And then if you, you you break down gender discrepancies there, then if you think about how many of those are af- actually African-American males, that number is even lower. So yeah, 4%. You start, you're talking 2% of the population, roughly, with a doctorate. And then when you start getting into psychology, the numbers even shrink even more. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, we hope we can inspire listeners. You know, I just feel I've been talking about this a lot. We interviewed um, a wellness counselor from Toronto, a beautiful Black woman. And she was saying that Canada allocated $10 million for Black mental health. But I just feel like we, unless you've been through it and you know firsthand, I was explaining that I was invited by a dear friend who's a wellness coach and a journal. She teaches journal writing and she's black. And she invited Mm -hmm. me to one of her classes. Well, everyone on the Zoom call was black except one other woman and me. Mm -hmm. And I knew most of them. And I thought, well, they're, you know, fine, upstanding citizens. They're so well-respected. How would they ever run into a problem? And they were bawling so hard on the call that they would turn their camera on. So to see how... You know, first it's the George Floyd video, and now it's Wisconsin. Yep. How do you tell people to 
absorb the news? What are you doing with that? Yeah, that that's a, as you know, it's a loaded slash great question, Kim. And, and then I'd remind you, I'm born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. That's the home of Breonna Taylor. So then we have that in my own backyard and the things that we've had to deal with here in Louisville, my city, right? My city of birth and where I was raised. So then we have that right here, like literally directly outside of my office, so to speak. So with that being said, you know, I think that, you know, on the one hand, it's important to recognize that racial injustices are real. And I think that what we know and what's really important is that what African-American folks need right now is more so allies like you, people who don't try to speak to saying, well, I know your experience or here's what I think you should do. The more important concept that we need right now is not self-pity. It's not, oh, you know, I feel so bad for you. It's not that. It's I need people to be able to say, tell me about your experience. Let me understand the best I can without having living lived, lived through it myself personally. Tell me how I can be of assistance. How can I sing on a rooftop? on your behalf and join a cause that's, and, and the, the irony of that, Kim, is that that also helps regulate emotions. When you see injustices, racial injustices and other things, that's another way of you saying, if my anger's triggered or my sadness is triggered, those emotions are trying to tell us to attend to something in our environment that's off. And that's very important for us people globally to be able to come together and unify and be able to eradicate that sort of thing. And, you know, something hit me yesterday that is so shocking. You know, like you say white privilege, right? A lot of people like to say white privilege. Well, there's a split in the white privilege circle, too. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know how privileged I am, but I'm very fortunate. Um, right. I was talking with a girlfriend last night who I know has different social thoughts than I do. It's because of who she hangs around, the media she consumes. But we get, we do okay because I think we should love each other and, you know, differences are beautiful things until she started saying things that were so not factual or scientific or even reasonable that I just popped. You know, I was like, what? You know, like, you think wearing a face mask takes your personal freedom? Did you wear your seatbelt here when you drove here? And then you go home and you can't stop, right? So I woke up at 3 I'm like, ah. Oh. So how do we deal with approaching our fellow human when our, you know, anxiety causing divisions can be what's on the table? You know, that's a terrific question, Kim. And I think that at the end of the day, it still boils down to having what we call cultural humility. And I think that that's so incredibly important is this idea of being humble culturally. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're wrong, right? It doesn't mean that you're wrong at all. But cultural humility is saying, despite whether or not this is not evidence-based. I'm real big on evidence-based thinking. I think you know that. Another discussion, but ultimately, despite the evidence that I might be correct, cultural humility is saying, I literally, despite the evidence, cannot resonate with your experience because I've not lived it. So despite what my judgment might tell me or despite what I'm feeling emotionally, it's essential in order for change to happen, for us to proverbially sit on our hands, if you will, and be able to listen to the perspective of our people of color, brothers and sisters, and find out, like, what is it about this situation that's so triggering for you? Tell me why you would think that and not try to pass judgment and say, well, here's what I think. Because I think, Kim, that the risk we run when we do that is further alienation and discrediting experiences. And I'm so glad you said that, because I think that's an extremely important concept, cultural humility. Yeah, I'm, I feel like taking notes when you talk, Kevin. I can do that. I, I keep taking notes. And I want to tell our listeners that this will live on the Global Wellness Summit Instagram page. So if you want to hear it. Now, let's get, let's, set, we want some nuts and bolts, Kevin. But first of all, tell us as a leader, as a, you know, an aide through this, what has been your toughest thing to face and what's been your most joyful? The Great question. So um, I would say the toughest thing that I've had to deal with is pretty consistent with other people Kim have had to deal with, and that is working out the logistics of providing quality care in the midst of a pandemic. Right. I think being having to think outside the box and be creative in delivery of mental health services, that's something we're supposed to do as psychologists anyway. But ultimately, when you're literally restricted from doing some of the things you ordinarily would do, let me give you a 10 second example. If I'm working with a client, because you know I specialize in anxiety, who say has OCD, some of the things I might get them to do ordinarily, I can't necessarily do in the midst of a pandemic because it could, in fact, 
you know, get them infected with the coronavirus. So having to be creative in delivering mental health services via telehealth, right, which is a huge thing right now, and being able to have the same effectiveness when I'm looking at someone across the screen as opposed to -to face-to-face, that's been one of the biggest challenges, but we've done very well. So I think that ultimately the, the best thing that's occurred is that we've been able to help more people as a result across state lines, being able to be creative, not only with telehealth, but also even with physical distancing, we've been able to still work with some people in person. It's just a matter of keeping our parameters in place. And so we've been really flexible, I guess, which is a word I love and being able to do that. And we still are able to see people change and navigate COVID, Kim, in a way that you'd be surprised by. Many of the clients I've worked with who struggle with anxiety have not been super concerned about COVID because they learn skills to manage their distress associated with it. I have a theory that the more scruffy, the more adaptable, and that's your word, flexible, that you've been your whole life really helps during COVID because you just go, okay, well, I'm going to approach it that way then. You know, there's got to be a pony in this room full of poo somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, 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 yep. (laughs) So tell us, people come to you for answers all the time, Kevin. You Mm -hmm. are a resource and that's taxing. That's draining. Where do you go to get recharged? What, What infuses you? That's a great question. I uh, Several things. Number one, I'm a person of faith. And, you know, most people of color are, honestly, particularly in the U.S. And I think that that's a very that's a very important source of strength for me personally. Right. That I think, secondly, as you said, I'm an athlete. So ultimately, you better believe hell or high water. I'm going to find myself working out. (laughs) So I, I recharge my battery most certainly through working out and exercise. I do it at home. But ultimately, when we built our home, you know, I said, you know what? I don't want to have to pay a gym membership. So I equipped it that way. And then COVID hit and I'm like, oh, I'll charge people $2.99 a month. I'm kidding. But <laughs> the point is, is I'm able to work out at home. So working out and being fit is really important to me, being a college, a former college athlete in that regard. And then of course, family time. Like, I, hey, I'm a so I'm social. I think you know that, Kim. I like uh, being able to watch movies with my two daughters and wife. My two daughters like movies more than she does, but there's that. And then I enjoy board games and hanging out and being able to connect with people in that regard, too. So all of those things are a source of support for me. And you combine those and, you know, scheduling that is very important and not being willy nilly about it, but making sure that it's a part of my day to day routine is super important. So, Kevin, tell us, too, I saw you have, um, you have two beautiful daughters and one is a teen. Are they both teens or not? Yeah, they both are. One just turned 16 and one's 13. Ah, so how do you <laughs> apply? You know, the cobbler's children have no shoes. It's really hard to not have your kids say, dad, don't try that on me, what you do with your patients, right? So yeah. what tips can you give for us to deal with our, with our kiddies through this? You know, that's good, Kim. And, and I'll say, I'll be honest, I, my daughters have done a pretty phenomenal job of accepting some of the things that, that I've taught them, primarily because their schools and such like having me there before COVID. Right. And I... I've taught a lot of emotional regulation skills and stuff to the school as a whole. So when their friends are saying, oh, your dad talked about that. That's so cool. It's cool to them. (laughs) So there's that piece. But what I would say, Kim, is what I like to tell parents is that it's super important that we create a safe space to talk about emotions, exclamation point. I think so many times we want to bail our kids out when in reality, we're not doing them any, any service whatsoever if we're trying to prevent them from experiencing anything. Now, it's important to make sure that we are able to not only regulate our own emotions, so modeling emotional regulation, but also giving our children the opportunity to talk about feelings and talk about emotions and normalize things like anxiety, anger from losing sports seasons, anxiety about, well, what's this gonna look like with college, right? sadness about, well, we missed out on all these things. Like all of that's so incredibly important. So I have to create a safe space to give my kids the opportunity to have that discussion. And that builds your relationship long-term when they're adults, right? Yeah. Cause it's going to keep, everything's going to keep having emotions, right? So right. tell us where, what, you know, Ted talk book podcast, besides the global wellness, wellness summit podcast has inspired you uh, <laughs> during this time. What are you talking to? Yeah, good. So there's been a few things. I'd say there's a book I've been reading by a gentleman that I've become acquainted with named Billy Epperhart. And uh, he's all about leadership. And he has a book called Leadership Mastery. I really appreciate his perspective with that book. 
because being not only a psychologist, but, you know, being an administrator of a center that I created, you know, it's important that I be a good leader, a leader with integrity, but also a leader who leads by example and breaks bread and spends time with the people that work with me, colleagues and friends. So Leadership Mastery is a, is a really important book I've read. I'm a huge Malcolm Gladwell fan, too. So anything that, you know, he's written, I've read. So, you know, David and Goliath, most recently, Tipping Point, you could read yeah. that a million times. Yeah. Like these are all things that have a psychological facet to them, right, Kim? So naturally, I gravitate to those sorts of things. But yeah, those are the big ones for me right now. But Leadership Mastery was a big one for me just because I'm really trying to, you know, step more into leadership role and be comfortable and confident in doing that. And that's a, a mantle that I have at the moment. So it's important to read up on that. Well, I yeah. think, you know, people that are following Global Wellness Summit's page, they love the word wellness, right? And I think it's so encouraging. If you want to know what wellness is, to have a doctor like you accessible and as part of a program at a wellness resort like Omnit, which will open mm-hmm. in January, supposedly, yep. that is wellness. Because unless mm-hmm. we do mind-body, we're missing, you know, one of the key parts of our of our being, right? Yep. Also, I circled on my notes from your Global Wellness Day uh, interview. Tell us the difference that you found between how men and women handle emotions, Kevin. <laughs> well, I think that because of the way men and women historically have been socialized, I think that men historically have been socialized to in- to internalize some emotions and some are socially appropriate, like anger has been one of those emotional experiences that we've been socialized to manifest, which obviously backfires and creates more problems. Whereas historically, women have been socialized to express emotion. There's a huge problem, right? When in reality, I was a, there was a piece I think we did, I think, it was, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, I think, where it was about anxiety looks different in men. And it was an interview that I conducted with the Wall Street Journal. And then we talked about how the irony, Kim, is there's so many there's so much overlap across emotional experiences that if we can teach across gender and such that there are similar physiological underpinnings across emotions, like for his, particularly for men, understanding that it's similar and being able to manage that more effectively and to navigate situations that trigger that are very, very, very important. The other thing that broke my heart and in a good way that I read about you, Dr. Chapman, is that you deal with prisoners that are trying to reemerge into society. Now that doesn't have anything to do with COVID, but talk about, you know, trial by fire. How, what have you learned from that? What can you share with us? Well, I, I'd say in terms of that, Kim, really more so what I did in that regard is uh, I'm a consultant. I've historically been a consultant for A&E, the, the TV network. And they consulted with me in one of the media psychology pieces that I did. There was a, um, a show called 60 Days In that they conducted. And I was the program psychologist for seasons one and two. So if you go back and watch 60 Days In, you'll see me, you know, briefly on seasons one and two. But basically what I did there is much of what I do now. And that is really helping them make decisions as it relates to navigating a prison experience, navigating the emotions associated with being in a prison setting, finding out like the psychology behind that, what that looks like when you enter a prison setting and when you're released and such. And, you know, ultimately it was for TV in that regard. But again, you know, helping people regulate emotions in a prison setting or in any other setting is really what that was about. So I do do some consultation work with some TV networks in that regard, too. And I think it's if we want to be open minded and realize that we're all human, people that have spent time in prison are human beings, too. And they deserve all the tools that any of the rest of us do. Yep. There's so much we could talk about, Dr. Chapman, but in the short time we have left... You know, we, you and I know your fight an acronym, but let's let's walk it through letter by letter. What is your toolkit that people can keep in their hip pocket in dealing with anxiety? Yeah, well, I'd like to say, and ultimately it is potentially going to become a practical book option, but uh, I like to tell people to learn how to fight. And when I say learn how to fight, I think that that's an acronym that I created in the midst of COVID. And FIGHT is an acronym, F-I-G-H-T, that stands for the following. F, we need to focus on what we can control. That's very, very important because we can't control how long this will be. We can't control what next season looks like. We can't control what next school year looks like. It's very important that we focus on what we can control. Identifying I, the identifying negative, identify negative thoughts. 
So there are thoughts that fuel the fire to strong emotional experiences. And though anxiety and sadness and fear and disgust and anger, et cetera, are all adaptive emotions, Kim, it's still really important to recognize that we can create emotional experiences right now that may, in fact, not be trying to tell us anything. So negative thoughts fuel the fire to strong emotional experiences. So when I identify those thoughts, then that's knowing half the battle. Hashtag G.I. Joe used to say that back in the day. The but G- identify <laughs> what you said, realize when you're thinking that something could be catastrophic. Because it won't be as well, right? Right. Absolutely. Because ultimately, negative thoughts are one thing, but we fall victim to what we call thinking traps. And catastrophizing is one of those thinking traps, as well as what we call overestimation, a.k.a. jumping to conclusions, making these negative predictions about things we can't predict. No human has the ability to do that. So to your point, Kim, I'm glad you said that. It's identifying those thoughts that are catastrophic in nature and not flexible. So that's a very important part of the fight. The G, to your point, is generating alternatives. It's not about being positive per se. Positive is important, but it's about being flexible, learning how to generate flexible thoughts. That's the key to emotional regulation, recognizing that generating different thoughts lead to different emotional experiences. Um, The H is highlighting adaptive behavior. What can I do to support those who've been discriminated against? What can I do to engage in exercise or help someone else do that? What can I do to stay in the present moment? Behavior is the high road to emotional regulation because it makes your body do the work for you because it triggers endorphins and it just makes you feel better when you do things that are active. And then finally, my favorite, Kim, of course, is the T, and that is teach someone else the same thing. I'm all about, my motto in practice is to teach you to be your own psychologist. So I think it's really important to learn these skills and tools of emotional regulation and then show someone else how to do it. And then they're going to show someone else. And if they show someone else, then we all get better together. And boy, do we need that. Yes, we do. (laughs) Boy, do we need that today. So I have learned so much. I've taken my notes, cultural humility, emotional regulation. Is there a positive message you'd like to leave us with? What hope do you have for the way this will all unfold? Yeah. Well, My thought, Kim, is that the acronym that I just gave you, the reason that that acronym is so important and effective is because not only the decades of research that we've done with cognitive behavioral therapy and emotional regulation and all the work we've done as mental health professionals, I assure you that if you follow these guidelines and follow these principles, if you learn to be more present, focused in your emotional awareness, identify the things that trigger strong emotions, learn to not judge emotions, to identify thoughts associated with that generating more flexible thoughts associated with that. I assure you, I'm in what's called the aftershot business, Kim. In other words, people come to see us and that they they have all sorts of impairment, but they always leave smiling, grateful, and their lives are changed forever. You can reprogram your brain and your emotional experiences by not only working through the things we talked about with Kim today, but also by helping someone else do the same thing. It works if you work it. And I know it's so incredibly important to instill that hope. I see it happen every day. And, and you basically, you got this. And I know that you can do it. Well, I have to tell you, if anybody there listening wants to find out what FIGHT stands for, go to Dr. Ch- drkevinchapman.com. drkevinchapman.com. We're going to look for your book. And we're going to look to keep talking to you, Kevin, because we all need it. And we're sending out, you know, emotional hugs and uh, thanks <laughs> to you for sharing and making your time. Because if we can't get down to see you, at least you share your thoughts on, on the media and on vehicles like this. So we can't thank I appreciate you. it. Now thank you, you stay Kim. strong, okay? Because we need you. Uh, you so do the same. Okay. I will. You do the same. <laughs> okay. See you later. Bye, Kim. Bye. <laughs>